We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're interested in uh, either taking out your Bible or maybe looking on a Bible next to you or take one out of the pew in front of you, um, we're going to jump in there in just a second. But if you aren't familiar with 1 Corinthians, let's just unpack this for a second. Let's begin at the basics. 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. Hence the clever name Corinthians. Now, if you look at the New Testament of your Bible, it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the Gospels. That word means good news. And all four of those books tell the life story of Jesus. Those are followed by Acts, which tells really the story of the beginnings of what we call the church. And then if you go all the way to the end of the New Testament, you find the book of Revelation, which paints this incredible picture of what's to come someday. But sandwiched between the gospel and Acts and Revelation are all these other books, many of them with funny names like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philemon, you know, words you use every day. And all of these are letters. They're letters. And, and all of them get those names either, either after the city that their church is in, the church that's written to, It's like Ephesians is in Ephesus, Colossians is in Colossae. Those are names of cities. And then a few of these letters that are actually written after either the person they're written to, that's the case for 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, or by the person they're written by. We have 1 and 2 Peter, and we have 1, 2, and 3 John. Those are written, you can guess, by Peter and John. But the bulk of the letters in the New Testament are written by this man named Paul. Now, we first meet Paul. He's actually going by the name Saul in the beginning of the book of Acts where we're learning about how the church began. And the thing about Paul when we meet him is he isn't a follower of Jesus. In fact, uh, he's dead set against Christians. He's spending his time going around from city to city arresting these Christians because in his belief system, they're about everything that's wrong. And so it's actually on the way to a city that's away from where he lives He's on the way there planning to go and arrest some of these followers of Jesus when on the way he has a surprise encounter with Jesus. And it turns his life upside down. So now instead of going to places to arrest Christians, Paul ends up spending the rest of his life traveling from city to city. He's still traveling, but now as he travels to these cities, he's telling people about Jesus. And in many of these cities, churches uh, start while he's there. And so a number of these letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are written back to these churches that he had a part in starting. Now, 1 and 2 Corinthians, however, are kind of special. We have a number of these letters, but 1 and 2 Corinthians are unique from the other letters in that it's really clear that as we read them, we're actually looking in on an ongoing back and forth conversation. We're not just reading a letter sent from one voice, but we're actually picking up. There's an ongoing conversation back and forth. Uh, we know this because as we've been studying and looking closely through this letter, we, if you'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 9 begins with, as I wrote in my letter or in my earlier letter, Paul's referring to something that he had written to them earlier. And then later, uh, by the way, he's referring to some pretty serious problems And uh, there are things that apparently he had addressed earlier, but they haven't figured out. So in chapter 7, he starts answering questions that clearly came from a letter from them. And it appears that what happened was Paul 
quite, a, quite some time after being a part of starting this church, he's written a letter giving them instructions. They apparently didn't like some of what he said, so they've written a letter back either with questions or outright challenges to what he said. And then in response to that, we have 1 Corinthians. And that's sort of the letter we're looking at. So as we read through this, we're, it's almost like we're listening to one side of a phone call at times. There's a very specific setting going on here is, is there's this back and forth. Now what's happening, and, and the reason for this letter, is that this church that Paul was a part of, he spent about 18 months there starting it, they're now fighting with each other. They're divided. There's all sorts of problems going on. And they're dividing over things that seem silly, like which leader is the best. We even found out a couple weeks ago when they come together to eat, sharing a meal is a source of division. They have all these things that are tearing them apart and they're separated. And so pretty much the first half of this letter, all that Paul's doing is addressing this division head on, talking about the various sources of it. And, and this ongoing message is stop being divided and be a united group of people following Jesus. And then when we get to chapter 7, it's clear that he begins really for the rest of the letter to start to answer some specific things that they've either asked about or challenged him on. But he's repeatedly calling this church to stop being divided. As I try to imagine what the church in Corinth was like, it might be like a classroom when the teacher goes out of class and everybody starts going crazy and throwing paper wads around and stuff like that. Like it was just chaos. Some of us maybe remember when mom and dad were at home and there was siblings around and you know arguments break out and people start jockeying for position in our house you know you go out to the car and the kids are trying to be the first one to shout out can i have the front seat right it's that kind of stuff there's just a vision going on over all of these seemingly silly things it's so bad in fact that in the third chapter paul tells them i can't address you as spiritual people but he calls them infants. He calls them babies. He compares their behavior, in fact, to babies. And we know sometimes if you act like a baby, you're going to get referred to as a baby, right? They're supposed to be grown up now, but they're still acting uh, really childish. And I want us to notice this morning, and we've talked about this if you've been with us, something that Paul wrote in chapter 10 as he's addressing these things, because it really sets the direction for almost everything he's going to say from that point on in his letter, including what we're looking at this morning in chapter 12. So hopefully this is going to come up on the screen. We've got a little issues this morning, but this is chapter 10. There it is, verse 23 and 24. And he begins in verse 23 saying, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Now, what's really interesting, and this is another one of those unique aspects of this letter in particular, you notice the quotation marks. There's a number of places in this letter where Paul's actually quoting something that it appears word for word they've written to him, or perhaps it's just a very common saying they're used, using. And in this case, that phrase is, I have the right to do anything, right? I can do whatever I want. Doesn't sound familiar at all, right? Sort of this idea of, you can't stop me. I can, I can do whatever I please. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. And apparently they thought that since Jesus had forgiven their sins, now they could do kind of whatever they wanted and not worry about the impact of it. They could leave behind all their old religious law and kind of just do whatever. 
So they'd say, I have the right to do anything. And it'd be really neat if we could go back and see Paul's earlier letter and their letter to see what they were using this phrase towards. What was it that they didn't want to be told not to do? Right? And they say, I have the right to do anything. And Paul's answer to that is, but not everything's beneficial. Not everything's constructive. You know, if you go back and you look, especially at places like chapter 5, what you find is one of the things going on in this church, and it's actually one of the things tearing it apart, is this group of people seems to be basically going after whatever it is they crave in the moment, and that's causing problems. And again, Paul's response is to say, not everything is beneficial, not everything's constructive. Not everything you could do is helpful or healthy. You know, as I think about this, one of the signs that we are growing, that we're maturing, is that we move away from the question of like, can I or is it wrong? And move towards questions like, is this the best thing I could be doing? Or is this wise? Because isn't it true there's a lot of things that we could do, but they're probably not good for us. Right? If I said we're going to go to the ice cream shop and you can have all you want, it's on me. Like there's at some point you could keep eating, but it's not going to do you good, right? That's kind of the idea here. And this is this picture, by the way. One of the ways we know we're maturing is as we shift away from can I or can't I kind of discussions towards, hey, what's the best thing that I could do in this situation? What's the wise thing? And Paul gives this direction that's really foundational for everything else he's going to write, and that's verse 24. He says, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. And this is in response to this, I can do whatever I want kind of attitude. What he's correcting them towards is actually not just thinking of ourselves, but in those choices we're making, in those, you know, things before us, not just thinking about myself, but but seeking the good of others. Now that seems pretty basic, doesn't it? Like that's not rocket science. That's probably something all of us have heard that we shouldn't just seek our good, but also the good of others. We might say something like, think of others, not just yourself. In fact, that kind of sounds like something parents say, right? I know I'm sure I say that. But, but think about the reality that Paul has to, in his instructions to this church, be that basic and go back to those really simple ideas that don't just think of yourself, but think of other people. This is a window into how chaotic and divided this church is. So that idea is going to be through everything we read from there forward. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And I would say this, you know, the first step of maturity is is moving from can I to is this a good decision? But that's still thinking about really the impacts on me. And the next step in maturity is not just thinking about what's the wisest thing for me to do, but also thinking about how are my decisions and my action's going to impact other people, right? That's what maturity looks like. Those are some of the movements as we grow. That's true as we grow in years, and it's also true spiritually. So with that, let's take a few moments and dive into chapter 12. We're going to begin with verse 12. And I want to see how Paul applies this idea that we shouldn't just seek our own good, but the good of others. And we want to notice that Paul's going to do something interesting. He's going to compare the church 
are to a human body. So this is chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12, which hopefully is right here. There we go. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, speaking of a human body, but all of its parts form one body, so it is in Christ. I'll pause there for just a second because this is said as part of a larger message that Paul's been specifically speaking about this idea that every single person who follows Jesus, by God's spirit, we're given abilities to be a part of what God's doing and to serve one another. That's what he's been helping them understand. And so in that line of thinking, he says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. And he goes on, he says, for we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, these are the two major ethnic groups in their day, slave or free, we might say rich or poor, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. It says, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Again, this seems like not rocket science. I can look at my body and I know there are different parts to it. But this is the um, analogy he's using. And he's saying that those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are one like our body is one. But at the same time, we're all very different just like we have different parts of our body. And if you look around this morning, we don't all look the same. That's a good thing, right? We don't all think the same. We don't all dress the same. We don't all sound the same. We probably don't all vote the same. We don't all listen to the same things. Some of us disagree over small things like whether Coke or Pepsi are better. Uh, Greg may disagree that that's a small thing. Uh, But we disagree over little things like, do I root for the ducks or the beavers? You know, do I like loud music or soft music? Or do I like tacos better than pizza? And then sometimes we disagree over things that seem bigger. You might have noticed, adults in the room, that um, there's a little division around politics right now in our country, right? By the way, I'll just say as a side note, there's a really interesting study that I think we should pay attention to, that when you look at actual issues, policy issues, and social issues, most of us are much closer than we realize. But there's been this division and this going to the edges in political groups. And so we get divided over all sorts of things. You know, who won a game we play? Who gets to be in charge? Never argue over my, that with my sister, right? Um, we're all unique. We're all different. And the reality is it would be really easy In fact, it would be quite natural for us to allow our differences to divide us. How do I know that? Because we do that in every other walk of life. We tend to gravitate towards people who are like us, who think like us, who root for the same team we root for, who who like the things we like. We tend to form as humans into these groups of people who are very similar. And yet what Paul is calling this church to is to embrace and to value this diversity that exists In the body of Christ, there are all these different parts that by God's Spirit were brought together as one in this unique way. And the word we'd use to describe that is unity. Unity is the idea of a whole bunch of people that are together for some reason, that are unified. It doesn't mean we all think the same. Unity is not the same, by the way, as uniformity. Unity is a group of people that for some reason decide to be 
together, even in their differences. And, and it's critical for us because it's something actually Jesus prays for. If, you'll, if you've been with us, you may remember this is in John 17. This is right before Jesus is going to be arrested. This is one of his last moments with his disciples, and he's praying. He's been praying for them, and then it shifts. He says, my prayer is not for them only, speaking to the disciples, but Jesus says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is praying for people like us out in the future. This is his prayer, that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So that the, why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. We do really well to pay attention to this prayer of Jesus because this is quite a big idea. He actually goes on. He sort of repeats this a bit. He says, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be what? They may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And when that happens, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, what's significant about Jesus praying for this is in that prayer is this understanding that evidence to the world that Jesus was actually sent by God will be the way we're unified together in Christ. That being together as one, even though we're different, is critically important. It's what's to set us apart as followers of Jesus from the rest of the world. And this unity that we share in Jesus is one of the main ways in which we have the opportunity to show what God's love actually looks like. It's in when we love one another in all of our differences. It's when we love one another even when we want different things or when we come to a decision and we have disagreement among ourselves. It's actually in those moments, not the moments when it's easy, but the moments where it's hard, where we're rubbing against each other, that if we maintain unity with one another, we have an opportunity to show an aspect of what God's love actually looks like. If you'll remember, Romans 5, one of those letters that Paul wrote, he actually describes God's love and says that it was at just the right time that Jesus died for us, and it wasn't when we were thinking on the same page. It wasn't when we were all good relationally with each other. Actually, the, the, just the right time that Paul describes is when we were still sinners, when we were powerless to change. He says we were ungodly. The idea is we did just the opposite of what God wants, and we were living as God's very enemies. He says that was the right time for Jesus to die for us. That's what God's love looks like. And so if we want to image that, the only way we can do that, church, is when we're really ticked off at each other, we really disagree over stuff, we embrace one another. Because that's what God did for us. That's what we're trying to show. And so those moments where we might think, man, I barely, I can hardly hold on because so-and-so is really bugging me. Those are the very moments we need to understand. We have this opportunity to show an image of the way God loves us when we love one another in those difficult moments. Because they do come, right? When we don't agree, when we want different things. Paul writes uh, to this church, whether you're Jewish or you come from a different religious background, this was this ethnic division they had. Whether you're a slave or free person, which is a huge difference between these two groups. He says, whatever background you come from, whatever perspective, we're all connected by God's Spirit when we become followers of Jesus. 
That's what we hold in common. It's that that brings us together. Not our agreements, not our similarities. It's Christ that brings us together. It's God's spirit. So at the core of what it means to be the church, which, by the way, is also called the body of Christ, is that in all of our differences, all of our desires and wants and preferences, it's not that they go away. It's not that those differences aren't there anymore. It's that with those differences, we remain closely connected in Jesus because God's spirit is at work within us. So let's see how Paul works out this comparison of the church with a human body. We're going to pick up in verse 15. And and if you're familiar with this, you kind of lose it. This is sort of funny. Like, again, this is is Paul writing to a group of adults using language that we'd probably hear like kindergarten, first grade. He says, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not... For that reason, stop being a part of the body. Would anyone argue that, by the way? That seems fairly obvious. He goes on, verse 16. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, speaking of these different parts. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body, Paul writes. I, I actually think Paul is intentionally ridiculous here. I think Paul's intentionally writing it at a level that isn't really adult thinking to bring across the fact you guys are still acting spiritually like you haven't grown up yet. And so I'm going to use that language with you. Our foot can't decide it isn't a part of the body. Our ear can't decide it doesn't belong because it's not an eye. I just want us to to just pause for a moment and recognize there's a reason Paul had to write this. Again, it'd be really fascinating to get to go back and see those earlier correspondence, those letters back and forth between them. He's not writing this because they don't understand human anatomy, right? He's not writing this because they don't know how the body itself works. But it seems obvious that this is what their thinking was like, is if we're not all the same, we don't fit. That I don't belong or I'll stop being a part of things because I'm not like you. It appears that they thought the idea of unity was the idea of being the same. That unity was based in similarity. Unity was a result of all being like each other. And he's describing something very different. Just like the eye can't tell the hand it isn't needed, we don't push people aside or disregard them because they're different than us. Again, the church is supposed to, at its core, be a bunch of people who are different but are connected by God's Spirit, and that's what makes it remarkable. Paul goes further. And we'll read that in just a moment. But he says in verse 18 that God actually placed each part where he wants it, that by God's intention, this is how it looks. And in verse 19, when he asks if we were all part of one 
one part of a body, where would we be? This was the closest I could come up with a picture. It's kind of disturbing. There's still, you know, still mouths and ears. But if we think this is healthy, that's no different than thinking that unity is a result of us all wanting the same thing or thinking the same way. It's just as ridiculous of a picture, right? We understand the body doesn't look like that. In the same way, we need to understand we're not supposed to look like that. We're different, right? We're different from one another. This is ridiculous. We don't fail to belong because we aren't like someone else. In fact, the church only works when a group of diverse people are together who have different gifts and abilities. So Paul's going to continue. He's not done. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. There are mornings where I want to say to my back, I don't need you, or I really need you to be different, right? That's part of aging. But, but he says, you know, one part can't say to the other, I don't need you. Verse 22, on the contrary, he says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Again, I just pause and ask, why does he have to write this? Why does he have to write this? Probably because like us, they've, they see some roles in the church as more important than others. Some positions, perhaps, as more important than others. Verse 23, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body. Again, why did God do this? So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. And verse 26 says this, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, everybody rejoices with it. Again, I think some of us, especially the older ones of us, can recognize that analogy that if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, right? My back locked up this week because one muscle wasn't happy and all the muscles around it became unhappy, right? We, we know this by experience, many of us, that if one, if I stub my toe really hard, the rest of my body doesn't not care, it hurts, right? And that's the picture he uses for us, that if one of us hurts, all of us hurt together. And in the same way, if one of us is honored, if something good happens to one of us, we all rejoice together. So not only... A way to think we don't belong because we might be different. But, you know, we, sometimes we get caught in that. And sometimes we also try to force or expect other people to be like us, to have the same gifts and abilities, to see things the same way. And Paul would say, just like the eye can't tell the hand it isn't needed. We don't push people aside or disregard them because they're different or they seem unimportant. Again, the church is supposed to be a group of people who are different, but who are connected by God's Spirit in Jesus. And again, that is the very thing that makes us remarkable when that's happening. Paul even goes further saying, the parts that seem weak are indispensable, that they're vitally important. In fact, it's the unexpected parts that are given special treatment. The same way God often seems to honor those who we might not think merit honor. 
He writes in verse 25 that God works this way so that there should be no division in the body, but rather that each part should have equal concern with one another. Again, that sounds like this, right? No one should seek their own good but the good of others. As Paul describes the way the church is put together, he says, it's so there's no, no division in the body, but all its parts should have equal concern for each other. That's thinking of the good of others. And when we come to those places where we rub up against each other because we're different, or, or maybe it gets a little heated because we really disagree on something, those are the moments when this understanding matters, that we need to think of the good of the other even in our disagreements especially in our disagreements, that we need to have equal concern for one another, that we should seek the good of others, have concern for those who aren't even like us and holding them as equally important. And again, why is that? Why does all this matter? Why should we seek the good of others? It's so that we can be unified in Jesus and actually show what God's love looks like to the people around us and to one another. Again, Paul even describes what it looks like for us to be together in Christ and having concern for one another and our differences. He really spells this out, actually. He says, this is what it looks like. If one part suffers, if one of us is suffering, the rest of us suffer with that person. If one of us has something really great happen, we all rejoice together in that. That's what it looks like to think of one another. So I, I want us to wrestle with a couple questions in light of uh, what Paul said here, and I'll put these up on the screen. First is this. How do I allow differences to separate me from others? You know, as I've sat in this question, it's disturbing if you dig deeper and deeper and deeper how many ways you find this is often true in our lives. There's so many things, right, that we allow to separate us from the people around us. But specifically, when we think about the church, how am I allowing differences to separate me from others? It's an important question to keep in front of us. Second, how might I be overlooking or failing to value someone? And when you walked in this morning and saw the faces around you, I hope you valued each and every one of them. Right? Sometimes we forget to give value to people. Sometimes we don't want to give value to get to people. But is there even someone maybe here who you would recognize, man, I'm overlooking or failing to give value to that person? And then another question to consider. Hopefully this is going to move forward for me. Can you get me to the next slide? I think our screen might have just locked up, so maybe I'll read this. It's this idea of, there we go. What is God's purpose for me within this church? Underlying this message of unity is this reality that the body only works when all the parts are connected and active. Again, this is written in the context of talking about the reality that God has gifted each one of us for the purpose of building one another up in Jesus Christ. And so if this is your church, whether you recognize it or not, God 
has purpose for you to be actively involved in helping to build the people up around you, actively involved in the work of God's kingdom? It's a really good question to just pray over, even if you think you know what it is. Maybe, maybe for some of us it's just, what's God's purpose for me right now within this church? What is it God would call me to today to be a part of things? I may have a larger picture of kind of the generally what I'm good at or not good at and what I can do and not do, but, but when we come with this attitude on a daily basis, like what's God's purpose for me today within this church? And we start seeking those things. It's amazing how God might reveal them to us. And then one more question. Try to make it concrete. What's one action I can take to develop unity with those unlike me at church? What's one action we can take? It might, might even be those I don't know, right? Those I'm not necessarily as comfortable with. What's something you could do? Uh, you, if you know me, you know I'm a huge proponent of eating meals together. There's something magic that happens around a table. Uh, just being together and knowing each other's stories. One of the things I've loved about our community group is we've heard one another's stories and they're all very different. We come with very different experiences and it's a beautiful thing. And as we hear those stories of one another and value one another, we recognize we all bring something to the table that's unique. So is there something you can do? What is something you can do this week, action you can take to intentionally work towards unity with someone who maybe isn't so much like you? Again, the question is, why does this matter so much to Paul? Why is this long letter preserved for us where we see Paul emphatically again and again calling this church to unity? I think it's because of this prayer we looked at earlier. It's because of these words of Jesus. When he's praying for those who will believe and prays that we would be one. By the way, when he says we may be one, it's a pretty big version of one. That we may be one is he and the Father are one. Right? Why? So that the world would believe that God sent Jesus. Jesus says he's given us the very glory that God gave him. That's a pretty wild thought. Why? So that we can be one in this amazing manner. Again, Jesus prays that we would be brought to complete unity so that the world would know that God sent him and that God's loved us even as he loved Jesus. The way this happens is when we set aside our differences and recognize our connectedness in Christ. And become a remarkable community of people who are not all the same. Who don't all want the same things. But all of that is secondary. To the fact that we love one another in Christ. And value one another in Christ. In light of our differences. This is who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. A diverse group of people. Unified in a manner that only God could bring. Unified in a manner that reveals what God's love looks like to those around us. Let's pray together. Father, I would ask that you would grow us in maturity as followers of Jesus, that you would 
if we need to make that move from am I allowed to do this to is this wise, help us to grow. God, if we need to make that step of only thinking about ourselves, but beginning to really think of one another in the decisions we make, help us to make that step this morning. God, the places where we allow things to separate us from one another, the grudges, the disagreements, the differences of opinion, whatever it is, we we just want to lay those at your feet this morning. Would you give us eyes to see way beyond those and to recognize this incredible calling we have as followers of Jesus that in light of all those differences, in light of different opinions and wants and perspectives and experiences and abilities and all those things, that we would choose to be together in Christ. That we'd allow your spirit to unite us in a way that's remarkable. We would ask that to be more and more the reality here at North Park. That we could honor you and love the people around us with a love that resembles yours. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, be the center, be my source, be my light, Jesus, Jesus, be the fire in my heart be the wind in me sails be the reason that I live Jesus 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 Fire in my heart, be the wind.
take our offering uh, as we sing another song. And as we do that, would you take out the bulletin or program that you got when you came in this morning? And the bottom of that tears off. Um, may have to work a little bit on some of those this morning. But um, the reason we do that is, A, to give always opportunity. If there's a way specifically that we can be praying with you, we'd love to know about that. If you're new around here, we'd love to know how to just remember your name. And thank you for being here. We don't do anything weird, I promise. We don't sell your information or stock you or anything like that. Um, but also just if there's any questions you have, maybe you have questions about how God's gifted you. Um, just another way that you can communicate those and we have an opportunity to connect. Um, I'd be happy, would be joyful to sit down and have coffee with any of you that have questions um, and talk further. And I just want to say really quick to our kids, we really value you. Don't ever think you're just kids. Because one of the things that I've been reminded as we've gone through this passage is you guys don't realize this in, in the back. We learn from you probably just about as much or maybe more than you learn from us. And so understand that you're not just kids in this church. You play a role too, and we value you very much, okay? Don't forget that. Let's pray, and we're going to take our offering. Father, thank you that we're not all the same. And uh, thank you that even in our differences, we can be united by your spirit. God, thank you for the way you provide in our lives. And we ask that you would help us more and more to see every good thing as a gift from you. As we give this morning, Father, we ask as well that you would just continue to increase our generosity, not just this morning, but through this week as we see people uh, who have needs, would you help us to be responsive uh, and to share the resources that you've entrusted to us in a way that shows your love. Thank you again for all that you provide. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.